Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Joining me on today's show is CEO and founder of Friday Pulse, statistician, happiness expert and TED speaker. It's Nick Marks. Before we get to speak with Nick, it's a leadership hacker news. In our role as leaders, we have likely to have made some significant decisions of late. Our approach to making decisions will vary from individual to individual. And whilst some considered and thoughtful strategic decisions would have absolutely been a must at work, recent research has found using a coin toss to decide major life decisions may ultimately make you happier. The new study has found overall happiness increased after a six-month period. The study, titled The Review of Economic Studies, published in the Oxford University Press, also found that people who rely on a coin toss to make a decision are more likely to follow through with their choice and be more satisfied as a result. To find out the impact of using a coin toss, economist Professor Stephen Levitt from the University of Chicago asked people to make important decisions such as whether to quit a job, move home, end a relationship or quit smoking using affirmative and negative assigned to either heads or tails of a coin. Users were also asked to include their own questions such as, should I get a tattoo? And prior to the coin toss, volunteers were also instructed to help identify a third-party adjudicator to verify the outcomes and assess independently the results. After two months, participants and their third-party adjudicators were asked to conduct a survey, which found that participants favoured the status quo, making a change less frequently than they'd predicted that they would before the coin toss, according to phys.org. However, a further study conducted after six months found that this bias towards the status quo had gone. According to the six-month survey, those who were interested to make certain changes regarding major decisions were more likely to do so and be happier as a result. Participants also said that they were more likely to make the same decision if they were to choose again. According to the researchers, the findings were inconsistent with the conventional theory of choice, which states that people who are on the margin should, on average, report equal happiness regardless of where they made the decisions. Professor Levitt said, Society teaches us that quitters never win and winners never quit, but in reality the data from his experiment suggests we would all be better off if we did more quitting. He went on to say, A good rule of thumb in decision making is, whenever you cannot decide what you should do, choose the action that represents a change, rather than continue with the status quo. The leadership lesson here is we often get stuck in change and we're not sure on which direction to take. And whilst tossing a coin might give us a yes or a no to a certain direction, does that change really bring about something new? So that's been the Leadership Hacker News. We'd really encourage you to share with us your insights, ideas and funny stories around leadership and leaders around the world. So please get in touch.
I'm joined on today's show with Nick Marks. He's the CEO and creator of Friday Pulse. He's an author, TED speaker, and a statistician. Nick, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thank you very much, Steve. So statistician numbers, I guess that must have started at an early age for it to become such a, a big feature in your life. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there's a lot of syllables in that word as well, isn't there, statistician? Um, I I just was I was good at maths and, and wasn't very interested in much else at school. I mean, I, I you know, I did my A levels were double mass physics and half of physics is mass as well. So, um, so it, it was, it was what sort of I could do. And therefore, you know, I was top of the top of the year at school pretty much all the way through and pretty much ended up at Cambridge reading mass before I'd made a decision about anything and actually ended up not liking maths at Cambridge because it's very, very pure and therefore discovering I was really an applied statistician. You know, that I liked using numbers to solve problems rather than the sort of abstractness of mathematics, which is what you get into in that space. So, yeah, it's kind of what I was good at. So the fascination really was not just about the patterns and the numbers, but actually how, how can you use these numbers in a positive way and how can I apply them to doing something that's relevant for people? Yeah, that was the big eye opener when I started sort of solving things, particularly on health statistics, you know they'd start setting you problems to solve maybe an A-level and, and anything that sort of had a bit more human side to it, I got quite, I, I enjoyed those questions more. And that's what I was actually able to do at Cambridge was I was able to switch into an applied statistics course. And, you know, we did sort of industrial psychology and um, queuing theory. I got, I, I queues, even now, if I get in a queue and I can see it's badly organized. Uh, that puts me in a rage <laughs> and it's partly my queuing theory sort of ideas but um yeah so anything that was very practical i got interested in and even more so during lockdown where there are queues everywhere i should imagine for you particularly that's really challenging right well actually the, what i don't like about queues is when they're not fair i don't mind a fair queue and and actually the lockdown queues are very fair aren't they you know you're standing there in order and you let older people pass if you're a certain time or key workers and that all seems very fair what I really hate is like when you come into an airport and you're queuing up and there's a big queue at the um, you know the passport control and you know one they haven't put enough people on but then you can't see if the front of your queue's got one or two people on it and so the queues go at different rates and you always end up in the slowest queue in fact you're statistically more likely to end up in the slower queue anyway but um, you and you and then it feels unfair and I once actually had an argument with passport control guy well, not an argument a discussion and I said I and I I said to him, you know, why don't you queue up in a snake? And he said, oh, actually, it makes the average queuing time go up, which is a very fair thing. And I said to him, well, the problem is the experience of queuing is related to the standard deviation, not the mean. <laughs> and he looked at me and went... I should imagine that went down well. Yeah, can you put that in writing, please, sir? <laughs> uh, my kids were very embarrassed. <laughs> and who would have known that queues have so much applied maths behind it? Which I guess, if you look around society that we're in, there are maths and numbers behind everything. I mean, totally. I mean, if you if you do marketing these days, digital marketing, you've got a lot of queuing theory and mathematics in there and about friction and flow and the way you model it. So there's so, so many ways that at least a sort of good A-level understanding of maths can really, really help you. I don't think you need to go much beyond that. But um, well, obviously some people do. But you know, so, so I, it is it is very interesting. To me anyway. So beyond university then, you started applying your learned mathematics. What happened next? So I, I, I did a master's and then I, I, I joined a consultancy. I mean, Anderson Consulting, who's sort of now called Accenture, 
and you know did programming and things like that but i i i quit really when i when i realized they were just going to sort of move me around the country to wherever they wanted me to work and i just got engaged and was in london and didn't really want to move around and i also started to make more choices in my life i mean i think some people this comes earlier but i started thinking actually what do i really want to work on and i and i went to work for a sustainability environmental investment company and i started getting more interested in things which were sort of as i say sort of more socially useful statistics yeah and i i did that for a bit but i also um had a slightly not kooky side but slightly different side as i i got very into uh, sort of personal development and i used to go to sort of men's encounter groups because i didn't really quite understand how to be a man in a world i found slightly misogynist and so i started exploring all that and the reason for that really was my mum was a therapist and in the end i trained as a therapist as well as doing my statistics which sort of makes for i think a very creative mix but an unusual mix anyway so that creative mix you now have has smudged that psychotherapy and your statistician background together to create what you do now the last 12, 15 years of your life, you've been really focusing on the whole principle of happiness and how we can be more focused and understand some of the metrics and numbers that sit behind happiness. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, it started in about 2001. I, I was doing some other work with a think tank in London uh, called New Economics Foundation. And the director, the then director, said to me, Nick, there's this word called well-being coming into public policy and no one knows what it means. And and can you help us, he said, drive some meaning under the word? And I, being a statistician, I said, well, I'd like to know how we could measure it because then, you know, policymakers might take it seriously. So we started a project which eventually became my whole work, which was uh, and it became something called the Centre for Wellbeing. But we started to create metrics around wellbeing that was useful for local, national and international and international agencies about um, people's experience of life effectively. And some people in the field were already calling that happiness. And I shied away from that for a while because it sounded a bit light for, for government policy. But I started to realize that it was a much more attractive word than well-being and also more relatable. And ultimately, you know, whether we enjoy our lives or not, in whatever basis we want to do that, is kind of what it's about. So it's sort of, it, 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 you know, and you can talk to anyone about whether they're happy or not. We can then discuss what that means and we can discuss, you know, whether we mean the same thing, but um, it, it makes a much more fruitful discussion. So that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah. It's a really neat principle. The whole happiness thing that I've explored, and there are a number of uh, great authors have written around a similar subject over the last sort of 10 or 15 years. It almost feels a little bit pink and fluffy and subjective. And I guess what you're seeking to do is to create some more objectivity so that leaders can be a bit more thoughtful of their personal impact around that. Would that be a kind of fair assumption? It is kind of fair, but I, I don't like, it's not you, but I don't like this sort of split between objective and subjective because our experience of life is sort of necessarily subjective. You know, we are the subject of that experience. And actually, a lot of statistics and data does is it objectifies things. So it will say we can measure your standard of life because we can see that and touch that. So we can touch your housing, your income, your whatever. We can measure that. Uh, but we don't know what you're feeling, so we can't measure that. And, and actually, that's not true. It's just it's a different type of measurement. And, and you have to be careful about how you do it. But you can put numbers on it. And so it, there's a way we use the word subjective, which makes it feel like it's very loose and it would change to everybody. But actually... Whether people enjoy their lives or not is 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 sort of gradable. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. That makes loads of sense, actually. If somebody was to ask you, 
what does happiness mean? How would you describe it? Yeah, I've had various descriptions over the years, but um, so I, I often say it's it's feeling good and doing well, and by that I mean that it's it's got a feeling element, but it's got a functional element to it. And we use the word happiness very broadly in the English language, so we use it as a sort of momentary feeling. I feel happy, but we also use it as what tends to be called a cognitive assessment. You know, I I feel happy with or uh, I'm happy with. So we're sort of reflecting on a sort of judgment about something. Um, And then there's a school of thought that thinks that happiness is a sort of capability that it's, it's, you know, that knowing or feeling that I can deal with anything is a feeling of happiness. So it's sort of like a perceived resilience going forward. You know, I can cope with things. So in that sense, I think that there is a functional element to it. And actually, purely from a psychological perspective or neuroscience perspective, then feelings and emotions actually help us act in the world. So there is this sort of, they're not just there as sort of a nice sensation, they actually motivate us to behave in certain ways. So so that's how I tend to think of it as, uh, you know, feeling good and doing well. Um, but then there's another nuance, which is, uh, which I quite like, which goes actually right back to ancient Greek philosophy, which is whether it's about pleasure and meaning and the hedonist talk about it as pleasure and Aristotle and people who talked about eudaimonia thought about it as sort of meaning and virtue. Aristotle had this idea that you can only know if you're happy when you're at the end of your life and you're looking back, <laughs> which is um, quite um, uh, harsh, but, uh, but, um, but, but in a way I, I think it's both in, in the sense that if we have a life, which is meaningful, but, no fun then we run out of energy quite quickly and if it's all fun and pleasure and there's no meaning then we sort of lose our way and we kind of need both of those parts and they they work in different time frames and so there's a nice tension between them and a nice synergy between them and and, and obviously there are times when you can get to in life which you know you feel you've got lots of meaning but no pleasure and, and you can get yourself into a crisis about that i mean i've been divorced and i've actually got in a situation where my marriage was hugely meaningful to me, but I really didn't enjoy it. And 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 that created a sort of crack in my life that I had to resolve. And so that, that I think of it that way as well. So that's sort of two different ways, feeling good and doing well and pleasure and meaning. I quite like the whole principle of it's quite an emotional response as well, isn't it? It's a personal response to what's going on around us, I guess. Yeah, our feelings are very much about what's going on around us. They're sort of us in our environment. Uh, in fact, the... The neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, I don't know if you've ever read him. Have you read him? I have, yeah. Um, Have you read his his most recent one, A Strange Order of Things? Maybe give us a snippet from that. Yeah, it's a a funny title of a book, but basically he's talking that feelings and emotions come before cognition, uh, come before central nervous systems in our evolutionary history. Right. And, And that they actually help us do three things, feelings. They help us monitor our environments. Uh, they help motivate us to act and they help us adjust those actions uh, over time. And that first one of monitoring is sort of, you know, our feelings are, actually, I have to say our feelings are data, that they actually give us information about what's going on around us. And and, and that's not just our feelings become emotions, but, you know, do we feel hot or cold? Do we feel hungry? Do we feel thirsty? It's basically telling us about and it's motivating us to act in some sort of ways. But, you know, our feeling of feeling frightened is that, you know, it feels like there's a danger out there and that we need to help avoid or get ourselves out of that threat. And we often have the feeling well before we have the cognition. And and that's 
really his argument is that the feeling comes first and then we apply our intelligence to that feeling and deciding how we're going to act. And the cognition, of course, prevents us from doing crazy things, which is why the executive part of our brain slows down and stops in some cases while we'll deal with those emotional reactions, of course. Yeah, the, the I, I'm not a total expert on the on the absolute specifics in it, but they absolutely are interconnected. And actually, even if you think about something positive like happiness, which is a little bit of a sort of gateway word to a whole range of positive emotions in that we can use the word very broadly but then actually you get to specifics. You know, some people will say, you know, if I say what's happiness mean to you, that they'll say contentment. And other people will say joy. Well, contentment and joy are quite different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one's very high energy and one's quite low energy. And of course, there's actually a whole range of things in there, like, you know, I mean, joy and enjoyment are different and amusement and you know, and things like enjoyment, amusement, laughter are sort of very social and they're very about bonding with other people. So when you're having a laugh with people or mucking around, you actually slow down, uh, you, you shut down your executive decision-making and your full intelligence because you're trying to bond. It doesn't pay you to be your brightest, most sort of um, uh, challenging self at that moment. You're better to conform. So, you know, so actually there are times when we're happy when when we're probably less intelligent. But there are other times, you know, if we, we think about other forms of happiness, such as curiosity or interest which are very engaging parts of that sort of positive emotions when we're absolutely fully using our intelligence and i and i think it's sometimes why in business and organizations people get worried about happiness they kind of think people be happy clappy and not very bright well there's certain forms of it which that's true for so they can point to it but actually what they really want is people to feel positive and safe enthusiastic and sometimes to have a laugh but just maybe five ten percent of the time and other times be doing other bits so there's really this whole myriad of different positive emotions and, and and we want to be agile and moving around between them sure now society also plays a massive part in this doesn't it so over the the last good of 10 or 15 years if you think about societies describe happiness with good economies wealth good social well-being and obedience having researched this all over the the planet what's your take on how that plays out well it's it's for certain that nations have different levels of average happiness and actually different distributions of happiness um, in them. And some of that, both the averages and the distribution, can be explained by economic and societal factors. And and then there's stuff more below that. But, you know, if, if we look at rank orders of nations on happiness, then Scandinavian countries tend to come top. And that's a lot to do with their social safety nets, which is it's not really to do with the fact that, that the sort of, um, I was going to say the average, but by the average, I mean the median, the person in the middle is not particularly happy in Scandinavia than, say, in the UK or the US. But what, where they are, they do much, much better is that the bottom half of the distribution or the, or the lowest 25% in terms of income are much less unhappy in Scandinavia than they are in the UK, the, the US and places like that. So it's more that they don't have the tail of the distribution pulling the, uh, the mean down. Uh, is they, they they have more equal distribution of happiness uh, within it, and and that's kind of interesting if you you know because people often go oh well you know say the Swedes are happier but you know don't they have high suicide rates don't they have this and you know I don't find the Finns very extrovert but and that's probably all true I mean but there are other factors also which is if you live in a broadly happy society and you're unhappy you probably take it more personally and so actually countries with a higher happiness rate may possibly have a higher suicide rate whereas 
if you live in a country such as you know India or Pakistan or somewhere where there's much lower levels, you know, suicide rates are probably lower because people feel more normalised about their unhappiness. Less highs and lows. Is that how I'm reading it? Yeah, sort of. You you feel less personally, you know, if, if you if you everyone around you is happy and you're miserable, you feel it's very much your fault. And so therefore, you know, I'm a burden on other people. And you get into this very uh, difficult logic where you start thinking it's actually better for you to take your own life which is tragically how some people get um whereas if everybody is you just feel like what well, it's happening to all of us which you know which in the current situation with um the anxiety around you know lockdown and covid because everybody feels in the same boat we're not sort of we're feeling more open about our anxiety because we kind of know it's not about us feeling bad it's about the environment so it makes it easier to talk about you also spent a significant amount of time pulling together enormous research to create the happy planet index just tell the listeners a little bit about what the happy planet index is yeah i I, the happy planet index is a is sort of a proposed alternative to gdp as a way of measuring the progress of nations and i've always felt that gdp was a really bad measure of welfare of the well-being of a nation in fact my one of my first published bits of work is from 94 and it was an alternative to gdp but it was very complicated. It was very objective. It was basically a huge cost-benefit analysis of the economy and had a lot of assumptions in it. And and I, I knew it was very complicated. But when I used to go and t- do talks about it, rightly or wrongly, what it did show was that about the mid-70s was about the highest in this index and it, it trading off. And people would go to me, that's how it feels to me, particularly older people would go. And right. I always thought, that's interesting. It doesn't say anything about what you feel. <laughs> it's just a whole load of economic data put together. And I and it did that started me perhaps thinking about how you measure what you feel. But when it came to the Happy Planet Index, which was released in 2006, so like 12 years after that first bit of work, I wanted to do something very simple and easier to agree with. I sort of learned that complexity and in indicators tends to put people off or if they get interested, they then start looking at all the assumptions and the debate gets about the detail, not the bigger picture. And so what I did with the HPI was I said, well, you know, What's uh, what's the outcome you really want from a country? And I said it's to produce good lives that don't cost the earth. And the planet bit in there is the sustainability element of it. And so I went, well, you could measure good lives by asking, by looking at the data on happiness across nations, so the quality of people's lives. You can then adjust that for the for the length of their lives, so life expectancy, which is a very good, reliable piece of health statistics. You've got data on from around the world, but you've also got to think about the efficiency of the nation, like how much resources does it use to get there? So the Happy Planet X became a, you know, environmental efficiency of delivering well-being, a sort of bang for your buck indicator. And um, and that's what it did. It ran coordinated nations uh, across the world. And basically, you have some countries which have got high well-being, but high environmental impact. Um, and that would be typically Western rich countries. You've got countries which have got low well-being but low environmental impact so those are sub-saharan africa and other nations which are really struggling and then you've got countries which are interesting which have got you know pretty good levels of well-being and much lower resource use and typically they were central latin american or some of the islands of the world or some of the sort of some of the asian countries which were um you know, which, which we're doing, which we're doing well. And that became interesting to think, you know, okay, how can we be, how can we 
create a sustainable future, which is also a good future. Because the problem with the environmental movement, which you know I certainly have been a part of and, and, and absolutely bought into, is but I think they sell very negative visions of the future with the idea that you can scare people into uh, changing their behavior. And I think we can all see over the last 25 years that hasn't worked. So, you know, how do we do it in a way which we actually say to people, well, actually, this could be a better future. And in some ways, some of that is going on right now with COVID in that people are thinking about, well, I'm staying at home, I'm traveling much less. It's actually less stressful for me. And it's about identifying those positives. You know, you know, as we, as we come out of COVID, it would be a shame if we don't take some benefits in reducing, you know, carbon emissions and uh, other things. I mean, that'd be disappointing having had this forced on us to not get some positives out it though no one welcomes covid could still get some positives out of it almost the planet's opportunity to start giving back isn't it at this time yeah i mean you can i mean there are people that go all that way and say it's you know guys feedback and i don't go quite to that level but it's an opportunity isn't it i think like any setback is an opportunity to learn even if you didn't want to get into it we're going to start to talk a little bit about what you're doing at the moment with friday pulse but just before we do what is the happiest place statistically on earth well, last year's data showed Finland as the happiest nation. Uh, and then I, I, the only within-country data that I know very well is the UK. And if you were in the regions of the UK, and, and I think it always surprises people, but actually London is the least happy region because it's urban, because inequalities are high there, uh, things like that, and people are very close together. Uh, whereas the happiest region of the UK is Northern Ireland, which is... Um, you know, which is more, much more rural and, of course, recent memories of trouble. So they've actually got a sort of point to go back to. So there's sort of different things. But the, at the national level, it's Finland at the moment. But it has been Norway previously and Sweden and Switzerland. As, and Denmark have done well. Um, Costa Rica is the very surprising one that comes through that's, um, that's particularly happy compared to its GDP. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the way it sort of is. Cool. And what would be the kind of one or two things that are consistent across those higher ranking happier places so there's income distribution which is that they basically tend to be more equal countries uh, which is what scandinavia is uh, and actually even costa rica is more equal than its sort of neighbors around it you know nicaragua uh, guatemala and all those other places around there so it, it does very well in that and there's also high levels of literacy gender equality in costa rica which of course are things that scandinavia is particularly good at so equality tends to come out stronger than people think. But of course, you know, richer countries are happier. That's sort of undeniable. They're just not becoming any happier with the extra amounts of wealth we have. We're not, we're not seeing those countries on a trajectory to become happier. The countries that are on a trajectory to become happier are some of the developing countries because they're, they're reducing, you know, poverty. Uh, they're reducing, you know, early deaths. So, you know, that obviously is a positive. And I wonder, is it more visible to them at the same time? Yes, yes, it, it probably is. I mean, it, there are there are there are differences between them. Like South Korea has been studied quite a lot because um, they've obviously been one of the Asian tigers, and and you know their their happiness levels have gone up, but they're very very materialistic there, and and they haven't gone up as much as say a country like Vietnam or something like that, who are slightly less so. So there are interesting differences between them. Um, and some of them are to do with density of population as well. But um, there's not just sort of one straight pathway. There are differences. Makes lots of sense. Thank you very much, Nick. So the organisation you lead now, Friday Pulse, seeks to take that 
distillation of happiness data, but from the colleagues and customers at the, the organizations that you work with to create something that leadership and other colleagues can actually use as a lens to get a sense check of how their workforce feels, how happy they are almost. Tell us a little bit about how Friday Pulse was created. Yes, yeah, so I did. I did my TED talk on the Happy Plan Index, another work I'd done in 2010. And obviously that's quite an honor. And, uh, and I sort of came out of it thinking it sort of allowed an opportunity to sort of bookend that part of my work. I mean, I'd, I'd accidentally got into policy and I'd done it for 10, 12 years then. And when you're working on something like climate change, it's quite slow moving. And, you know, I thought, well, I've got something else in me. Maybe I do something. And I was always interested in business. My dad was a businessman. He led an organization. And I I thought, well, this is very applicable there. You know, if, if leaders knew how happy or not teams were that would give them useful information so i started creating a happiness at work survey uh, which was a one-off survey to begin with and learned a lot about how the data worked in organizations started to get my own opinion about what i thought the drivers of happiness at work were and how we could measure them uh, but I actually hadn't created a tool that was exceptionally responsive you know it's like a one-off survey like most other surveys are but started to think, well, actually, what really an organization needs to know is know how it's moving through time. And so started thinking there's a way of measurement and happiness we, we, we call, well, there's three ways of measuring and happiness, really, which is that we can do what's called a cognitive assessment, which is what most surveys are, which is we ask people to look overall and reflect on it. You can do something which is called experience sampling, where you basically bleep people during the day or, or, or text them or whatever. Say, how do you feel right now? It gives really nice data, but it's really annoying. <laughs> so the one in between is called episodal measurement, and you, and you get to the end of an episode and you ask people to reflect back on it. And I decided to go for that way of measuring it and started off asking people various cadences. So a month, how's your last month been? A day, how's your day been? Uh, and settled on a week because daily was a little bit too annoying. And also you could only just ask people how happy were you or not and nothing more. If you ask them monthly, it wasn't very responsive. So much can happen in a month, uh, as we've learned recently. And weekly is the sort of sprint of work we go, we tend to work to. So we ask people on a Friday, um, that's why we call Friday Pulse, you know, how was your week? How did you feel this week? And uh, and that creates a very responsive, we call it happiness KPI, but a very responsive metric, which when you group at a team level is effectively a measure of team morale. When you group at an organizational level, it's, a correct, it's, it's people's experience of the culture of the organization, experience of work right now. And so you can look at that. And I mean, the good thing about a question like that is you can ask you know, a truck driver that question. You can ask a CEO that question and they can give you an answer to it. Whereas if you ask people how engaged were you this week, most people don't even know how to answer that question. They don't, they don't have an idea of what the top of the scale is, particularly. They know if they're disengaged, they don't really know what the top of the scale is. So. So when you ask people how you felt and were you happy or not, they can give you an answer that's very good, reliable data in that way. And what do you notice the themes are that contribute to a happy culture at work for leaders listening to this podcast? There are some general themes across an organization and there are ways that you can articulate. So the way that we do is we say there are five ways to happiness at work and, and they are connect, which is relationships are the most important, They're kind of the cornerstone of creating good experiences or, or undermining experience for that case. Uh, for that matter. Uh, the second one is to be fair, which is that if people feel they're treated fairly, respectfully, then uh, then they, they can bring themselves to work much more. Uh, the third is to empower them. 
sort of their autonomy, delegating yet and use their strengths. The fourth is to challenge them. So this is sort of misunderstanding of happiness that people are happy doing nothing. It's actually not true. They're bored. Uh, and actually people like it when there's a bit of stretch. Not not if you stretch them too much, challenge them too much, they go in stress. If you under challenge them, they go into apathy and boredom. You've got to get the right sweet spot, which is always tends to be the way anyway. And then the fifth one is to inspire, which is about meaning, purpose, where they feel they're doing it's worthwhile. So those five things, connect, be fair, empower, challenge, inspire, are the big drivers. But then there's specific things that go on, which is really to do with the environment and what's what's going on around them very locally, which is that some people, some teams will find them in a very stressful situation. All their work environments are stressful. So with with people moving remote at the moment and, and very very quickly moved remote a few weeks ago, you know, that some people were happier working at home than others and, and lots to do with their environments, whether they got children, whether they, you know, had the right equipment at home, whether they had a quiet space, you know, whatever it was. So some of those things are very, very local and some of those bigger, broader cultural things. So, so yeah, there's, there's, there's two effects really. And like any business and any part of any business, it's feedback data that I'm getting. And also aligned to that is that leadership choice as to what I do with that information as I receive it, right? Totally. And in fact, the whole of Friday Pulse is really a feedback loop. And actually, it's very similar to therapy in some ways, which is that in therapy, therapists listens to their client and they reflect back to them and then they work with them about the challenges that they're facing. And we listen to the population, the employees, by asking them every Friday, how do they feel? We feed that back to them and the team leaders and then senior leaders, you stack the data up in nice reporting. And that enables people to then work together to, to to make better experiences. So one of the things I'm very keen on is people don't just focus on the negatives, don't just focus on the deficits. They actually appreciate the assets and the positives going on. And so on a Friday, we don't ask only ask people how they felt. We also ask them, uh, what was the success for you this week? Have you got anyone you want to thank? Because appreciating each other is really important for both sides of that equation. And then we give people the opportunity to share frustration or an idea to make things better. But but actually, most of our clients really, really work on accentuating the positive because in lots of ways, businesses tend to focus on how do you solve problems, what comes up, and actually probably often don't take the time to go, yes, good job, and to actually get that human appreciation, which actually we all really respond well to. And hitting back to the neuroscience we talked on a little bit earlier, of course, it will release different neurotransmitters that create that self-fulfilling prophecy of getting additional positive outcomes from our thinking and our behaviours, which helps improve happiness, of course. It certainly does. And I mean, all of this works together, you know, physically, but I, I always think about it as like, you know, if, if someone compliments you, you know, your sort of head goes up and your shoulders go back and you sort of feel bigger because you're feeling confident. Whereas when someone criticizes you, you can tend to sort of hunch up and pull your shell in, you know, uh, and protect yourself. And and we're much better when we're expansive and, and shoulders back and actually other people like working with us more like that as well. So there's there's so much to be gained from being positive. But of course you have to be realistic. You know, it doesn't mean to say you, you let people travel out into a sort of fantasy world where everyone's doing a good job. No, the point is, you know, really differentiating and really understanding and helping people build on their positives. So this part of the show, we're going to turn away from you being a statistician, but look at you through your leadership lens running an organization. And at this part of the show, we like to ask our guests to share their top leadership hacks or ideas. So if you could share based on your experience as a leader, your top leadership hacks, what would they be, Nick? I think that the big thing is um, listening to people 
you know, I, I don't employ people to tell them what to do. I, I employ people to work with them and, and get the best out of them and actually learning to bring the best out of them. The main way is listening to them, even when they disagree with you. So I think listening is, is probably the first one. Second one um, is I think little and often, I, I think I've tried to, where I've gone wrong previously would be when I've tried to do big interventions. And actually, I think doing smaller ones, checking is a much better way. Uh, but consistently, I, I I definitely have had to learn that, you know, leadership is a is a weekly process, maybe even a daily process, but a, a weekly one, you know, where you're you're asking questions every week and you're listening every week rather than just sort of going, right, these are our goals for the next quarter and then checking in two, three months later and realizing people have gone down a different tangent or or something's emerged, you know, maybe for good reasons, but you don't know about them. So I think the little and often is probably the next one. For me, definitely, when I, I think inspiring people, which is that I hold the vision for the company. I don't necessarily hold all the solutions, but I hold the vision for where we're going and why we're doing it and remembering to remind people about that. So reminding them of the why, but it's actually, you know, bringing that into, into your weekly work in that, I mean, particularly with all the adjustments we've made just recently in COVID, everyone going remote, you know, I sort of had to remind myself to remind everybody why we're doing this. If that makes sense. It makes so of sense. It's one of those things that you set off a vision to start with and other things get in the way. And we as leaders also need reminding that it's our job to remind people and to make sure that, that we're continually talking about the journey and how we're going to get there and what's going to get in the way and remove barriers. It's part and parcel of that, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And it's actually a bit of the job I really like. <laughs> um, at the, at some of the detail bits I'm, I'm less good at. I mean, it's funny, I'm very good at details and stats, but I, I, I can sometimes sort of like, you know, I, I probably like many people not got the longest attention span and, and I sometimes sort of get start, you know, and I, I have to make myself up for it, but the, the inspiring bit and the listening to how they feel and what they're doing. I mean, I, I can do that for ages because I really like people and I really believe in what we're doing. Um, so those are the bits I find easier. It's, it's keeping people on track and the detail that is always my learning edge. <laughs> Thanks for being so honest and they're great hacks also. So when we start to think at this partnership, we've really enjoyed getting into the heads of our leaders and our guests where they've maybe screwed up in the past or something's gone catastrophically wrong. And indeed, they are now using that experience as a positive in their life. We call this hack to attack. What would yours be? Hack to attack. Well, I, I mean, in some ways, I've sort of pointed to it with a little bit of those last bits, but I think that I have definitely been guilty of letting things run for too long. Because uh, I wasn't confident enough to challenge people, and and so you know, I previously had someone in the business, and um, you know, she has some really strong qualities, but it just sort of always going pear shaped, and 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 I, I kept on coming back to every three or four months, but really, we should have parted companies at least a year before we eventually did, and that cost us a lot. Uh, and and you, she she wasn't happy. She wasn't doing quite what she wanted to do. I was trying to, I guess, force her. Or, or, there was a role that needed doing, and I was wanting her to do that role, and she wasn't quite wanting to do it. And she was definitely capable of it, but it, it just sort of ran on far too long. And and in the end, it all became very messy and you know, angry. And I th- if I dealt with it much earlier, we'd have had a lot less problems. And it's the same problem I had with my marriage, actually, which was that you know I let things run too long, and I should have been challenging and, and 
about that earlier. And I, so I think that's my, my weakness is tending to gloss over some of the negatives. My positivity overrides listening to, to, to negative feedback or negative signals. And I think that's actually a really important leadership is to be able to, one, hear the negative signal and to deal with it because it doesn't go away. It's great learning, Nick. And also, if you think about the themes that you are now encouraging other leaders to talk about through Friday Pulse, there's a lot of synergies there in terms of what your learned behaviors are to what you're encouraging others to learn from now. So that's super stuff. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and this is where we're going to ask you to do some time travel. I want you to think about if you were able to bump into Nick at 21, you're able to give him one bit of advice that would make the difference. What would it be? <laughs> I quite like my life, even my mistakes. So, you know, that's not like something I'd massively want to change. I mean, I think I was a little uptight as a 21-year-old. I was a little serious and I had the future weighed on me quite a lot. I, I sort of kind of had this feeling I wanted to do something and, and, I, 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 and I probably wanted to do it quicker than uh than was possible and you know and uh, i mean i have actually done things which are interesting i think i just would say you know relax it will be okay follow follow what you're interested in i mean in some ways i have done that actually so but when i was 21 yeah i was a little bit i was a little bit still uptight yeah if only nick would know the 21 year old nick who might have been a little bit uptight still found his way to be where you are now which is you know impacting the lives of many other people so that's great advice yeah it's nice to think that the 21 year old nick would be horrified at the thought that the 55 year old nick had got divorced he wouldn't like that at all (laughs) (laughs) but uh but apart from that he'd probably take the rest good stuff (laughs) okay so as people have been listening to you nick We will make sure that we encourage them to get over to TED and have a look at the Happy Planet Index talk, which I think is really inspiring. And I I love that. But where else can they find out about the work that you do with Friday Pulse and indeed some of the things that you do now? Yeah. So, um, yeah, Friday Pulse is is the name of the company. So it's FridayPulse.com. And it's actually we're offering it free for organizations up to a thousand people uh, at the moment. So they can try it for three months and and see how they go with it and see how they like the data and how they can work with it. I create blog articles and posts on LinkedIn most weeks. So connect with me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I always like meeting new people there. And I have a personal website, which is more my sort of speaking musing, which is nickmarks.org. Nick is no K uh, in that. So those are the main ways to find me. We'll make sure they're in the show notes to accompany this podcast as well, Nick. So as people are finished listening, they can literally just click into those links and and hop over to find you. Fabulous. Thank you. Nick, I just wanted to say, I'm incredibly happy that you've chosen to be with the Leadership Hacker podcast. I've spoken to you a few times now and I've loved the conversations that we've had. And as a result, I know we're going to get a lot of happy hackers listening to you too. So thanks for being on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. 
Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.